When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we party like it's your birthday and no one remembered. So grab your waterproof mascara and your tissues and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about complex PTSD. I think we've all at least heard of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's the trauma we experience after a specific trauma has taken place. We often hear about it in reference to war veterans, but PTSD can happen after any kind of trauma, like a sexual or physical assault, a car accident, a natural disaster, like a flood or earthquake. That's PTSD. Complex PTSD is the trauma we experience after being traumatized over an extended period of time, like months or years. There are lots of symptoms like having nightmares about it, feeling on edge all the time, you know, like anxiety, um, avoiding relationships or repeatedly getting involved in kind of like shitty, toxic relationships, becoming dizzy or nauseous if you find yourself in a similar situation. There can be this like overall sense of shame, like I'm defective or no one will ever really want me or I don't belong or even feeling like this kind of general despair or sadness or loneliness about the world. Like the world is just a toilet of sadness or like a den of danger with werewolves around every corner trying to suck your blood and leave your corpse in a river. Sorry, that was like three confusing horror references in one, but you get the point. And, and these are just like some of the symptoms. Suffice to say, it's not a cool fun time. So if we have it, how the F do we stop feeling like we're just swimming in tears, you know, for life? to help us get some clarity around that. I'm so happy to welcome marriage and family therapist, Renee Tate back to the pod. Hi, Renee. Thanks so much for coming back on. Hello. Glad to be here. Thank you. And thank you for stepping in last minute. I, I had, there was some like crazy astrological stuff and it mm. effed up my whole everything. And you came in last minute and I can't thank you enough for doing that. Yes, of course. No problem. Hopefully it's a fun conversation for all. Yes. Well, I am so excited to talk about this, like enduring sadness with you, mm-hmm. <laughs> but before we do, let's chat about your astrology. If I remember correctly, you're a Capricorn sun, Leo moon, Virgo rising. Yes. And today is Virgo new moon. Okay, girl. Yes. It is a new moon in Virgo today. And that means we are in Virgo season. Mm-hmm. And are you, are you feeling those Virgo vibes? I would say, yes, I'm feeling those Virgo vibes, lots of great things happening, lots of great shifts. So yeah. Yay. Well, and also one of the things about Virgo, Virgo is, um, co-ruled by Chiron. Chiron is the healing planet, right? Like the master healer, the, um, 
how we go on healing journeys. Chiron oversees all of that. And so I feel like it's perfect to have you on, on the Virgo new moon, uh, (laughs) during Virgo season with your Virgo rising to talk about going on a healing journey from complex PTSD, because (laughs) it sucks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah. So let's get into it. I'm going to start by talking about some of my experiences with complex PTSD. While I do that, feel free to jump in with thoughts, ideas, ancient proverbs, whatever comes up, or you're totally fine to chill out, eat cheese, online shop, whatever you feel like. And at the end, I'll turn things over to you with some questions. How does that sound? Sounds great. Okay, cool. Here we go. So I was introduced to complex PTSD a few years ago. I'd been sexually assaulted by my roommate and I was spiraling into a depression. Um, And so I decided to just like full on plunge myself into therapy. And I thought the therapy was solely going to focus on the assault and kind of like rehabilitating me in my relationship to men and sex and trust and, you know, all the things. And while there was a lot of that, I was surprised to learn from my therapist that I also suffered from complex PTSD as a result of being abused as a child. For me, even though I I knew my childhood had been hard and once as a teen, an adult had told me that my dad was abusive to us, it was sort of hard to wrap my head around that because I didn't know all the ways abuse could look. And also because my parents both have their own mental health struggles. So that was a double whammy. My therapist was like, you are suffering from complex PTSD as the result of the home you grew up in. So I'll talk a little bit about what my childhood looked like, but also I want to name that there are many ways that complex PTSD can happen. Like Ongoing sexual and physical abuse is a way, being stalked for a long period of time, being in a cult, witnessing violence over an extended period, even if you weren't the target of the violence, that's still another one. Neglectful caregivers who didn't provide for you, caregivers who struggle with addiction, um, caregivers who have any kind of untreated mental health disorder that created an unstable environment. Like these are all ways, and there's certainly more. These are just some examples. Okay. I'll start with this example that I was talking to my therapist about the other day. I have a very clear memory of being four and going to a Mexican restaurant with my mom and my sister to meet up with my dad. My parents were divorced when I was six months. So I saw my dad just like every once in a while when I was little, anyway, we're all sitting in a booth and the waitress, uh, brought chips to the table. Well, I was a tiny little person, you know, I was four and I couldn't reach the chips. So I sat on my ankles so I could make myself taller. And my sister did this too. And we reached for the chips and this infuriated my dad. He completely flipped out. He started screaming obscenities and screaming that we didn't know how to behave. It went on and on. And then he stormed out of the restaurant. That kind of thing was super common with my dad. His rage would go from zero to 60, like with the flip of a switch. And you never knew what was going to cause it. There was another aspect of this with my dad though. And I I remember being maybe five or so, and we were all at his mom's house, my grandma. My grandma loved to spoil me. And she always had like, you know, all the goodies my mom would never let us have soda, sugary cereals, cookies, you know, all the things. Anyway, I asked my dad if I could have a Coke and he said, no, (laughs) of course. So I went and asked my grandma, which was in part because I knew she'd say yes, but also because my dad wasn't really apparent to me, you know, like my dad didn't take care of us. 
we didn't live with him. He was rarely around when I was that age. So it's kind of like, well, who are you anyway? So I asked my grandma, she said, yes, I got the Coke and he got really mad. But what I really remember about it is that he told me I was manipulative and greedy and that all children are manipulative and selfish. So there was this shaming piece that went on. It was clear to me from a very early age that my dad didn't really like or want me around. There was another time that I've thought of a lot as an adult. Things had ended between him and yet another of his girlfriends. And when I asked, I think I was like six. And when I asked why they'd broken up, he said it was because of my sister and me, because she didn't want to be around us. And another time he told me that I was a mistake, like just being born. (laughs) He was like, children are almost all a mistake. You were a mistake. So there was just this like meanness, right? Like he was just mean. Um, He didn't hit us and he didn't, I mean, he did spank us a little bit, but, but he didn't like beat us and he didn't sexually abuse us. But I grew up watching my friends who had, you know, kind fathers and loving fathers and And I just felt this incredible grief and emptiness and sense that there was something really wrong with me that made my dad so mean to me. And that if I could figure out what that thing was, then I could fix it and he would want me. And that led to an adolescence of throwing myself at my dad over and over again, literally spending the entire summer with him every year in the hopes that this time I would get it right. And by the way, if any of that sounds familiar, I just put out an episode on fawning trauma. So that might be helpful for you. When I was 17, I told my dad, I was really angry with him, you know, for, I can't remember specifically what had happened, but I was just kind of like you, you, this thing that you did, it was like shitty. Anyway, he turned it around on me real quick. He told me that I had made him feel unloved every time I'd chosen to spend the night at my friend's house instead of coming home for the night during the summers when I would stay with him. And in the end, I apologized to him for making him feel bad. And that was the end of the conversation. And by the way, if that sounds familiar, I have two episodes on narcissism that might be helpful for you. My mom had a lot of similar behaviors. There was a lot of unpredictable rage. I think I was probably five or maybe four when um, one night my mom just suddenly started beating her head against the wall and kicking it and screaming. I wish I'd never had kids over and over. But unlike my dad, my mom would sob after a lot of these rage episodes. She would say she was so sorry and she would want to hold us and cry and we'd all like, kind of cry together. And, um, and we would end up comforting her and telling her it was okay. Everything was going to be okay. And she would ask, I mean, we were little and she would ask us like, am I a terrible mom? And we would say, no, you're such a good mom. We love you so much. At the time that made me feel very protective of my mom because I wanted to fix her pain. And also it made me feel like my mom and I were super close because in comparison to my dad, this was so much better, right? Like my dad never cried or said he was sorry or wanted to hold us. It wasn't literally until this year when I was reflecting on these emotional episodes with my mom that I realized they were really scary and confusing to me at the time. And then in the aftermath, my mom had us there to soothe her and, and tell her that it was okay. What she had done was okay. She was a great mom, but there was no one, no adult to ask me how I was to ask me what I needed in that moment. The focus was always on my mom 
and what she needed emotionally. And that would continue really for the rest of my life. By the way, this piece is called parentification where the children take care of the parents, either physically or emotionally. And actually that's going to be the topic of the next episode. So if that resonates, um, keep an eye out for that. Anyway, as I got older, my relationship to my mom continued to be super confusing because my mom was our financial provider. My dad never paid child support. So I grew up thinking of my mom as this like feminist single mom warrior, which, you know, on the one hand was absolutely true. But on the other hand, it was as if she needed to be seen on that pedestal to feel okay. Like we were not allowed to question her in any way. She was either the strong heroine of the story, or if we weren't going along with that narrative, we were attacking her and she deserved better. And she was a victim. So it was like, either she was a victim or she was this strong heroine, but like she, she couldn't just be wrong (laughs) or, you know, have made a mistake. I remember starting when I was probably 10, she would tell me that she felt like we were just using her, my sister and I, if we would like, you know, need new clothes or, um, whatever it was, want to go to, want to take dance lessons. She would also rage and say that she could have been really successful in her career if it hadn't been for us. Um, she would threaten to send us to live with my dad, which, which like, those are similar. If you think about it energetically to the kinds of things my dad would say, you know, like that I was manipulative and greedy that his girlfriend left him because she didn't like us, that I was a mistake. It's all part of this messaging of like, you're not wanted, who you are is bad. So I feel like this is kind of the place where I do a meme of like how it started and how it's going. (laughs) But the how it's going would be from my early adulthood. And let me tell you, it was not going great. I came into adulthood a real fucking mess. And I really didn't understand why I didn't know that I had been abused. I sort of knew with my dad and I had, um, a lot of this like stifled anger toward my dad that I expressed by either not speaking to him sometimes, or just like completely fawning over him. But with my mom, it was really murky because my mom was also, you know, my whole life had been my sole financial supporter. She put me through college. There were times when she really cheered me on. There were times when I felt super supported by her. There were times when it felt like we really connected and I felt loved. I also knew a lot about the abuse she'd experienced as a child. And because of that, I was very invested in the narrative that she was the victim, that she was this sort of like martyr figure. And that it would be too painful for her to have to acknowledge any of the pain we experienced as a result of her mothering. And so it was my job to make sure she never had to look at any of that. So there were several things happening. There were the effects of the ongoing abuse, which I'll get into in a second. There was the rage toward my parents that I was actively stifling and the feeling that I wasn't allowed to have a voice with them, like an authentic voice. And then there was the denial that I was a hot fucking mess emotionally and that I had been abused for years and years. Instead, I joined a sorority and got a 3.9 GPA and then went to grad school and like whatever, like all this shit that looked good on paper that I did sort of compulsively to try to, you know, make the bad feelings go away. But of course, none of it worked. And by the time I was in my late twenties, I was really struggling So I'll talk about some of 
the effects and how the complex PTSD showed up in my life later down the road. I've talked about this once before on the pod, I think, but I have a very clear memory of being 28 and writing in my journal. I was writing to God. I'm not religious, but I was writing to God over and over again. I wrote, you made me wrong just again and again, like over and over. You made me wrong. You made me wrong. I felt so deeply inherently to my core flawed. And it wasn't like I had a specific thing that made me flawed that I could name. I did tend to pin it on being like too sensitive and too much, but I also thought I wasn't talented enough. I wasn't cool enough. I was living in San Francisco during the height of the hipster movement. So there was plenty of room to not feel cool enough. Uh, I wasn't pretty enough. Like I would just cling to anything that substantiated the underlying belief that I wasn't good enough just the way that I was. And I felt very sure that if I ever showed anyone how much pain I was in, they would run. They would want nothing to do with me. So really the belief was if I'm myself, I won't be loved, which is a symptom of complex PTSD, this negative self-perception that's rooted in shame. And that essentially tells you that you're bad for whatever reason you come up with. And what's so interesting to me in retrospect is that this feeling was very much attached to my relationship to God. In my mind, I had a very clear vision of God looking down on me and seeing me squirm and not giving a single shit. And while he was giving these other people happy families and like, you know, nice parents and enough money to feel secure and healthy relationships and all this stuff. He was purposely giving me trauma and anxiety and pain. And he was enjoying that. Like, like I wrote in my journal that night, he made me wrong. And then he sent me down here to just fucking deal with it. So it wasn't exactly the world is a scary place. It was more like, I don't have God's love, you know, God, the ruler of the fucking universe, you know, and that means my life is going to be really hard and painful, which as I'm sure you can imagine, did make me feel super anxious. And these are both aspects of complex PTSD. There's a symptom that's described as the loss of mean of systems of meaning. That's what it is. Loss of systems of meaning, which is a kind of convoluted way of saying that you lose faith in the world. And that's exactly where I was. Not only did I not have faith in a higher support system, I actually had faith that the system that supported other people was actively against me because there was something wrong with me. Anxiety is another symptom again, you know, and like for me feeling like God hates you, it's just a great way to be anxious all the time. You know, there are bad things around every corner of the ruler of the universe enjoys hurting you. But for me, there was another aspect of this. And that was this terrible fear all the time that I was in trouble for something. Even as an adult, always afraid I had upset someone or that someone was mad at me or that I would be in trouble for making a mistake or that if I stood up for myself, people would be furious and abandon me or do something to get back at me or whatever. Just like all this crazy anxiety around being in trouble. Like I remember one time, and this wasn't even that long ago. This was maybe like six years ago. Um, No, five. I got a speeding ticket. I was driving back to LA from um, Arizona and a cop pulled me over and you know, the cops in Arizona, well, the cops kind of everywhere, but the cops in Arizona specifically, they're assholes. And he was an asshole to me. I bawled the whole way 
back to LA. This is five hours. We're talking of sobbing in the car. I had to like call at the time I was in Al-Anon, which is a 12 step program for friends and family of alcoholics. I had to call my sponsor (laughs) and like, I was shaking because I was, I had gotten in trouble and it was so overwhelming to me. And my response was so disproportionate to what had happened. It's like, yeah, you have to pay a ticket. That sucks. Yeah. Like, you know, you have to take traffic school. That sucks. But like the way that I responded was just overwhelming terror. Right. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. This fear, this terrible fear of being in trouble, which when you grow up in an environment where you're not allowed to be angry ever, and you get in trouble for things that don't make sense, like sitting on your ankles because you can't reach the chips. Like it's, it's pretty easy to understand that anxiety. Another symptom of complex PTSD is a lack of emotional regulation, which I just sort of talked about, but it can also look like explosive anger or ongoing sadness. I was too deep into my fawning trauma to have explosive anger, but that ongoing sadness was real y'all. Like I used to joke that the reason I never got emotional around my period was because I was already so sensitive 24 seven. And that's probably another example of me trying to mask what was really going on with humor. But the fact was, it was as if there was this vow of sadness that I'd taken. I cried constantly. I cried in my car. I cried in bed. I cried in the shower. I cried at school in the bathroom. It felt like my heart was so broken, which really made me double down on this belief that something was wrong with me. And I can only imagine that this is at least sort of common with complex PTSD because it's not like there was one event or one clear memory that caused the feelings. And for me, since there wasn't overt physical or sexual abuse, I mean, like I said, I was, I was spanked, which is abusive, but it was the eighties and that was normalized. You know, lots of kids were spanked. So it didn't register to me. Plus I was so used to feeling sorry for my parents for different reasons or feeling like I had to be protective of their feelings. I didn't realize I'd experienced ongoing abuse. So this unshakable grief state that I was in year after year, it felt like it was just a result of me being a walking flaw. It was my fault. It was because I was just fucked up and I was made wrong by God. Another symptom of complex PTSD is a distorted perception of the abuser, which from what I've read can look like this obsession with revenge all the way to wanting the abuser to fully have control over your life. I wasn't either of those things. My thing was the denial around the the abuse. I certainly didn't have any idea that my mom had abused me. I was hook, line and sinker sold on the idea that she was a victim first and foremost. And also my hero, right. Who provided for me when my dad had abandoned us, right? Like this whole narrative. My mom had basically created a dynamic where as long as I catered to her emotional needs, I was loved, which by the way, is not how love works, (laughs) but that was as close as I could get. That was as close as I had gotten. And so I was really invested in that with my dad. The denial was still that like, maybe he could be different if the magical something happened, maybe that he would like have a near death experience that would jolt him into realizing he really loved us. Or maybe if I stopped talking to him, he would realize what he was missing. Or maybe if I was just really sweet and really unproblematic and never did anything wrong, then he would love me. But all of those things happened, And my dad never stopped being abusive. So really my distorted perception was rooted in this like 
fawning over my parents and this denial of um, how they were showing up really. The other big symptom here is trouble with relationships. And I save this one for last because it's such a massive part of my story. I, I almost don't know where to start with this one because I feel like this could be its own episode, but I'll start by saying there are two parts to this for me. One is getting involved with men who were showing up in like full-blown toxicity mode as a result of my own trauma and my complex PTSD. And another is after being in so many traumatizing romantic situations with men, developing a separate complex PTSD around men. So, okay. So let's just kind of look at the relationships aspect. I was sexually assaulted by my neighbor when I was 14 and he was 15. And afterwards I fawned. I, which by the way, if you're not familiar with fawning trauma, it's essentially where like, when you experience a threat, you know, some we've heard of fight, flight, freeze. Sometimes you fight back. Sometimes you just kind of freeze and like try to blend into the background. Sometimes, you know, you run away, right? That's flight. Fawn is where you start trying to pacify, compliment, appease, just be really nice to the threat so that they stop being a threat to you. So anyway, after I was assaulted, I fawned over this person. I pretended that it was okay. Like what had happened was okay. That was my denial stuff. And, and he told me he was like really struggling in math. And I was like, I'll be your tutor, right? Like that was my fawning response. I'll, I'll tutor you. And he called me pathetic. He told me I was pathetic for being nice to him after he had sexually assaulted me, which I'm like, it's not funny, but it's like, wow, wow, wow. I then was with someone, um, from like late high school into college years who cheated on me for years with who even knows how many women I still to this day, don't know how many he made up super elaborate lies to get away with it. Told other women he was with that. I was crazy and possessive told me that these other women who were showing up on his phone, like were crazy and possessive over him. And like, wow, all this stuff. He, he was definitely a compulsive liar. There was someone else I tried to be with for many years who wouldn't be with me and was very obviously just using me for sex and was like really manipulative. And I just like kept being involved with them. I fell in love, um, in my thirties with someone who was gay. He was like, he was my best friend really. Um, which is as far as being emotionally unavailable goes, trying to get a gay dude to fall in love with you is kind of as hopeless as it gets. But on top of that, he was also just emotionally unavailable. And after 10 years of what I thought was like a very intimate, close friendship, he just stopped talking to me and later told me it was because he just stopped thinking about me. So yeah, lots of trouble with relationships. When you're coming into a romantic scenario, believing that you are inherently flawed at your core and that if you show who you really are, you won't be loved when your trauma response is to fawn over people who are threatening to you. And when your survival tactic is to befriend your abusers or be in denial about abuse, that's right in front of your face, because otherwise you won't be loved. Yeah. You're not attracting healthy people or healthy relationships. You are at a severe disadvantage. And man, I have struck out so many times. I mean, that's a euphemism for, 
I've gotten completely fucked in relationships with men more times than I haven't. And as a result, I'm pretty avoidant. I've realized when it comes to dating that I am, I, as a result of this, I, like I'm traumatized. <laughs> I am traumatized. And so I avoid it because it's scary. My therapist a few weeks ago was like, your homework this week is when you see a man, when you're out, think to yourself, he might not be so bad. And I laughed because I was like, okay, lol, that's overdoing it a bit. I'm not that bad. But then when I was out and I tried to do it, I was like, holy shit. My immediate thought when I'm out and I see a guy, especially if he tries to talk to me is no, 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 get the fuck away from me. Like, it's not those exact words going through my mind. It's that energetically men are guilty until proven innocent with me. I assume, and this is, I'm talking about dating right now. I assume men are just going to try to spit game, try to use me for sex, are closet misogynist, posing as progressive and woke, are entitled, are self-absorbed. The self-talk around men and relationships is traumatized, y'all. Your girl is traumatized. And I'm realizing now how all of these things are connected. My parents' unstable rage, their unwillingness to see my pain, my mom creating a dynamic early on where I only get love if I don't question her, my dad telling me I'm manipulative and greedy at five years old, the belief that God doesn't love me, that I'm deeply flawed, my repeated involvement with guys who brought me into cycles of emotional abuse, and this distrust and avoidance of men as an adult, single, heterosexual woman. It's all connected, which, by the way, is not to blame my parents. Both my parents were also abused. It's to create context and an understanding of cause and effect and how these cycles play out. So what has helped me? Where can we look for healing? Whew. There are so many pieces to this. There's the generalized anxiety, um, the feeling of being unlovable, the loss of faith, the troubled relationships, the avoidance. There's a lot going on, but let me start here. I'm not a religious person. And actually you could easily argue that I'm anti-organized religion, which by the way, if you're religious, that's fine too. That works for you. Great. But for me, it makes faith a little tricky, right? Because there's not a go-to for me. But years ago, maybe like six or so years ago, I started reading tarot. And what I quickly realized was that there definitely is a higher power. And this power knew some shit. Like, for example, what was about to happen in my life? One thing about the tarot is that it won't lie to you, for better or worse. But as a result of my anxiety, I became a compulsive tarot reader. I could not make a single decision without asking the tarot what I should do first. I actually wrote a piece for Marie Claire about this a couple of years ago. So even though the tarot made it clear to me that we're not alone, there's something out there. It did not help with the feeling that that thing might be sabotaging me because when you pull the tower or the tennis sword or some other bad omen card, it can feel like the gods are laughing at you while they send you to your doom. So in the last maybe year or two, I switched to an Oracle deck. I still sometimes use the tarot, but mostly I use Doreen Virtue's angel messages deck and her Archangel Raphael healing deck. And it's changed my relationship to faith profoundly because instead of giving you some vague symbol of bonus or like impending danger or whatever, 
It gives you very gentle messages that remind you that you're being cared for by angels and that these benevolent forces, no matter what's going on, have your back. And because the tarot had already made it super clear that there's something on the other side that has a bird's eye view, switching to Oracle decks just filled in that gap where I didn't believe that that thing on the other side was benevolent and that it loved me and wanted to see me succeed and be happy. I realize that's not helpful for everyone because spirituality is such an individual thing. But if you're struggling with feeling connected to any helpful version of faith, my suggestion is that you get in your room alone because this is what I did and say out loud, I don't know if there are angels or God or anything out there, but if there is, and you're a benevolent force, I invite you to show me, to give me overt signs and to reinforce my faith. I say that because another thing I've come to understand is that this is all very woo-woo by the way. And if you don't feel woo-woo, I'll get to you in a second. But what I've come to understand about angels is that they can't intervene unless you specifically ask for their help. So if you're open to it, give it a shot, can't hurt. And if you have something specific that you need help with in your life, I highly recommend you know, that you just ask the angel to intervene. That's in other words, pray. <laughs> That's another way of talking about it is prayer. That said, I realize not everyone is going to resonate with angel shit. So if you're like, this is way too woo woo for me, I'm an atheist. Great. Start making a list of whatever makes you feel like there's more good in the world than bad. Like maybe it's dancing, maybe it's being in nature, maybe it's singing, maybe it's masturbating, you know, just get clear on the things that bolster your sense that you're supported and that you're safe and that you get to have joy and make a point to do those things. Because the bottom line is we need to repair that wound that we don't belong in the world and that the world doesn't love us and is a bad, scary place. Another thing that's helped me is getting super in touch with the voice that says you're a piece of shit. For me, that voice was like, you're too sensitive and you're not enough. My mom and my sister's messaging all my life to me was that I was too sensitive. And the story I'd made up to explain why my dad didn't love me was because I wasn't enough, right? I wasn't good enough. So my thing was, I'm too sensitive for this world. This is a mean world and I'm too much, too emotional for it. And no one will love me if they see how emotional I am. But while I'm too much, I'm also not enough. <laughs> so just a fun mind fuck, you know, where you can never win. But here we are and jokes on me because I literally started a podcast that shines the brightest of spotlights onto literally all of my shameful vulnerabilities, which of course, you know, no one has to go to that extent, but, but it's about turning that belief on its head, right? It's that cliche that everyone talks about. The thing you think is your weakness is actually your greatest strength. Just start befriending it right? Start talking to it differently to that voice. Think of that thing. You're so ashamed of as being embodied by a small child. So in my case, that terrible, unshakable sadness, I started imagining it as a small child coming to me and saying, I'm just so sad all the time. If a child came to me and said that I wouldn't look at that child and be like, aha, you unlovable fuck, you know, right? Like I'd be like, sweetheart, what do you need? Can I hug you? Do you need to cry? Do you want to talk? Because guess what? Chances are that that thing inside you that makes you feel guilty or ashamed 
it's probably a very young part of yourself. It's something that started for you in childhood and still there unresolved, unhealed. So treat it the same way you would a small child, give it tenderness and compassion. You know, don't be like you sad fuck. You'll be alone forever. Right. That's what I used to do. And obviously making that transition is easier said than done. And I'll be the first to admit it's not something that happens overnight, but the more you practice that, the more effortless it becomes. Another big piece of this for me has been getting clarity on what abuse took place. That won't apply to everyone with complex PTSD. You know, for some people, they know exactly what happened, but for some of us, the abuse just felt normal after a while. And especially if it happened when you were a kid, because you didn't know any different, you didn't have any other experiences to compare it to. And it takes a lot of work with a therapist, a lot of reading up on the nature of the abuse that you experienced, and a lot of critical thinking on your own to start to understand what happened wasn't just someone having a bad day. And it wasn't someone who's not responsible for their actions because something traumatic happened to them. And again, that's not to vilify your abusers. Although if that needs to come through for you for a while, that's okay. You know, let that shit flow. But ultimately it has nothing to do with them. It's about becoming solid in your truth and reconnecting with your knowing, reconnecting with your core self. Being in denial in my experience makes you vulnerable generally to people who don't have your best interests at heart, not just your abusers, but just people. People can feel when you don't have boundaries and when you're afraid to call it like you see it. And when you feel really bad about who you are, and some of those people will take advantage of that. If you're in the habit of denying abuse, that's right in front of you, you open yourself up to people who will take advantage of that. So start with the abuse that happened early on in your life, get clear on it and get in touch with knowing you didn't deserve it. Okay. Renee, how are you doing over there? I am listening. I hear you. It's you're amazing. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. And you're amazing, which is why I am so stoked to dive into this with you. I have a lot of questions and I feel like just given that you work with families and you kind of have a relational approach, I feel like you can add in a new perspective here. So I'll start with this one. A component of complex PTSD is the shame factor, like feeling like there's something really wrong with you. I've had lots of stuff around. I'm too much or I'm defective. Like I was mentioning, you know, I'm too sensitive. When we have those negative beliefs about ourselves as a result of complex PTSD, how do we start to shift them? So with the component of shame, shame is quite a beast and it thrives in darkness. It thrives staying hidden. It thrives not being seen. And um, as we know, or as some people will come to learn that shame cannot stand in the face of being spoken out loud. It can't stand in the face of company, right? It will flee. Like 
if we are willing to be vulnerable, you were just speaking about vulnerability too. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, we do leave ourselves vulnerable to, you know, people who don't have our best interests at heart, but we can learn to show up in a way where we use our vulnerability in a healthy manner, right? Where we're using it as a power versus as something that's detracting and taking away from us. And so we can use our voice to speak out that shame with safe enough people, right? With people who we trust and with people who we find actually want to see the best in us, right? So it's important to be able to speak the shame out loud because once again, shame cannot exist when it's spoken out loud, because it thrives in darkness. Oh, so. oh, oh my God. Uh, I have chills. Oh, I love that so much. Shame thrives in darkness. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. That makes so much sense. I don't, I, I've never heard it put that way. And that just feels so powerful to me. That feels so powerful. Okay. Complex BTSD. Um, you know, it can look a lot of different ways, but, but one thing that often happens as a result is this kind of like generalized despair or generalized anger or generalized distrust of the world. I know for me, I've struggled a lot with like uncontrollable sadness. And, and actually it's interesting, you know, linking that to shame. I felt so ashamed of that. Right. But, but just this feeling of like, like my heart was broken all the time. And like the world was only good for a select group of people. And I just wasn't chosen to be in that group. Yeah. When we are coming into the world that way, when we're just looking at the world through that lens, how do we repair that wound to the world at large? So a big piece of um, a complex PTSD is, you know, that inaccurate perception of self and that inaccurate perception of not just self, but like others, mm-hmm. like the world and even God, right? Like that's one of the threads and the through lines. And a piece of healing that wound is, of course, knowing that it exists in the first place, right. is recognizing that this is the lens through which you've been viewing everything for the longest time. And to do it in a way that allows you to foster care, compassion, and curiosity. Mm-hmm. And those things are difficult in and of themselves, just having self-compassion for yourself when you've been in a state or in a condition or in an environment that has told you to have sympathy for yourself, to want to protect yourself is actually not okay. Mm. Right. Like that actually your healthy ego kind of gets stripped away Mm. when you're in a situation and you're being shamed all the time. And I want to just pause and, and like highlight what you said when we grow up experiencing PTSD, our healthy ego gets stripped away. Mm-hmm. That is so key, I think, because right, exactly what you're saying. We are taught that it's not okay to have compassion for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Okay. Sorry. Love it. Keep going. Nope. Not have compassion for yourself and to like any, anything that you try to do to protect yourself, that inkling where you're like, oh, this is unjust, right? That gets stripped away essentially. Right. right. And so then you grow up into uh, of the world, you enter society, right? And then you're forced to now kind of reconcile this lack of having a healthy ego with being around 
all these different peoples navigating all these different systems and relationships and communities. And no wonder you feel sadness and despair because you were never given the opportunity to actually grieve the fact that like you were in a shitty situation, that someone didn't see you, right? You were told you were wrong, inherently wrong. Like all of these negative things were thrown upon you, right? But what's important to know is that like, yes, the world is a scary place. And we, there are some, some things that we cannot control, but it's learning to rebuild that trust in yourself and really having that authentic attachment to yourself Mm -hmm. that will allow you then to slowly begin to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. And I use the word attachment, a healthy attachment with self and connect with other people purposefully because you want to be attached to you and your core self, because that's where all the answers that you're ever really going to need are within you. (laughs) I'm one of those people, right? Mm -hmm. And connection with other people, because we are all interconnected and we all are, there's no way for us to not be connected (laughs) in this world, right? As much as we might feel alone, like isolation is a myth, but it's this grandstanding myth that like, once we pull the veil back, we realize, oh, well, damn, I actually am more interconnected than I realized. But this lack of trust will keep us paralyzed and in fear of reaching out to someone or reaching out to get help. Mm. You said something that I really loved. You used the word curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a key part that I I didn't even think about it. But when you said, I was like, oh shit, that is really big. When we're navigating complex PTSD and we have, you know, we're looking through, we're, we're looking through the lens that we have the lens of, um, I'm mad at the world or I'm sad at the world, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Um, the way we can kind of start to get space from that, I think is like, be getting curious mm-hmm. w- what's actually true about the world and what's the lens that what's the traumatized lens, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's like an assumption that happens with complex PTSD that what you, for me, I'll speak to my experience. Cause there are lots of ways that, that complex PTSD can show up. But for me, it was like the way I was raised showed me one way of looking at the world. Let me get Mm -hmm. curious and ask, is that the only way? Mm -hmm. And let me get curious and ask, do people really not want me if I'm honest about the pain I've been in? Mm -hmm. Do I, and that's kind of like, if we can get curious about that question too, Mm -hmm. then if the answer maybe is no, because for me, I all like, (laughs) I'll say I started to shift my thing around. People aren't going to want me if I am emotional. Mm -hmm. I was able to shift that because someone asked me, it was probably a therapist. Do you want people in your life who are emotional? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God. Yes. For fuck's Uh sake, please (laughs) show me your emotions. Show me that we can resonate, that we can bond over something. Yes. Yes. Show me that like you give a fuck and that like we, we, that I'm not alone in this, you know, show me that. And she was like, okay. So she was like, so, so then you want someone who is that way. So there are probably other people who want people who are emotional too. Right. And I was like, 
fuck. Okay. And so I love that you brought in curiosity because I do think that that is such a great jumping off point where we can just, it doesn't mean we switch a light. It means we start to create space between us and the lens that we didn't even know we were looking at the world through. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that we all come in with this view of how things are and how the world is. And it will sometimes take someone outside of our immediate environment to show us even that there exists a different lens or a different thread, like a different way of existing and being. Yeah. So it's not like, I think about how complex healing from complex PTSD is like, there's no one size fits all right. There's so many different domains that we have, that we get to hit on and domains of healing that we get to traverse through. And that curiosity is going to support you throughout the whole time, because if you can allow yourself to be curious and step back and say, okay, what else is true? Mm. Right. Or what else am I not seeing? Or just even flipping that question to to be like, okay, well, if this is true for me and I know that X, Y, Z about this person, well, then there's there's complexity there. Mm. Like it's building that muscle and our ability to hold complexity, right? Mm. Not just to go into that um, black or white, either or. Right. Yeah. And you and I were kind of chatting about that before Mm -hmm. we started recording about this. Um, I was saying my Al-Anon sponsor told me, I was explaining some situation to her and she was like, ah, so essentially you're creating in your mind, like the way that you see it is it's either this or it's that it's black or it's white. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, okay. I think she was like, that's, that's really great because I want you to start to notice when black and white thinking comes up for you because black and white thinking is traumatized thinking. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that at the time. So that was, that was like, you know, my mind was blown, but I started to notice how even in like the political landscape yeah. in so many places, um, when you, st- when you start noticing it, that yeah. black and white thinking where we're not holding complexity this is, this is trauma in action, you know? And so we can start to just notice that when we're doing that, it's because we've been traumatized in this way. And so I just think, yeah, I just want to call that out and like name that. I think that's really important too. Yeah. And it manifests in the way of like, the world is a trusting and loving place or the world is not a trusting and loving place. Right. Or like it's dangerous or it's safe. Like there's, it's one or the other. And when we lean into one or the other, we, effectively cut ourselves off from the like variety where like living actually happens. Right. right? Yeah. Yes. And I, and you know, what comes to mind for me too, like clearly my relationship to, you know, heterosexual men and dating my, I had super traumatized thinking. I was like, Mm -hmm. men are bad. Men are scary. Right. That's one example. But another is even like with my mom, for example, for so long, my traumatized narrative was, my mom is a martyr and she is a heroine and she is only good. And, um, like I was too scared to look at this other side. And I, the thing is my mom really did do some amazing things, raising us with, you know, on her own with no help. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. And she was abusive, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's about like, 
part of like connecting with my authenticity and restoring that healthy ego is being able to hold those complex things and not have to make a choice, you know, from the place of trauma. Yeah. I love that. Um, and maybe in one of these questions, hopefully we can come back to grief. Cause I think that's really fucking profound, but I'll, I'll move on to this next question. I read that people with complex PTSD struggle with relationships, as I talked about, mm-hmm. <laughs> either they're more prone to entering into abusive relationships because it feels familiar or they avoid relationships altogether because they don't trust people. For me, I'm a little about, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm actually great when it comes to friendships with women, but I, you know, like I mentioned, I very rarely date. I've pretty much never had a boyfriend as an adult. Um, the men I have dated have sort of consistently been a disaster, whether they've been mean or cold or whatever. I genuinely just thought I was picky for a very Mm -hmm. long time. And also thought like, oh, men are basically shit. And also I'm very picky and I'm not going to put up with any bullshit, you know, whatever. And that, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't met the right guy, which probably is also true, but Mm -hmm. can, can you just kind of talk about this aspect of it? Like, how do we know if we struggle with relationships because of complex PTSD? And once we've gotten clear that that's the case, like, how do you sort of, you know, in the work that you do, how do you work Mm -hmm. with your clients so they can start to change that dynamic and build healthier relationships? Mm -hmm. So let's just be real. Relationships can be hard period. (laughs) Like, and then when you add on the layers of early childhood traumas and early childhood experiences, we're then once again, allowing ourselves to view the world through this lens of our defectiveness, right? This lens of not enoughness, this lens of like, I'm going to get in trouble all the time, like, or, you know, no one's going to accept me, right? There's like this lens that gets in the way of being able to navigate a relationship with someone in a manner that actually feels supportive for you. But it's really telling when you can take a step back and look at the patterns. So you often see the patterns. And so this can sometimes be helpful, whether it be in you know therapy or going to a group or belonging to a community of people who just you trust and you are able to kind of share. And like over time, you can start to even maybe journaling to like, see what are the patterns, right? Like tracing your relational history, whether it be with family, right? What's the nature of those relationships? What, like, is it in good standing? Giving it a a number, like rating it. What, how would you like it to be different, right? How, what would you like more of? So like getting really clear on um, the things that you do value, and the things that you see that are getting in the way of how you actually want to show up in that relationship. Uh, Okay. So getting very specific, it sounds like, like really starting to notice what do I love about this relationship? What do, what's really not working for me about this relationship and just starting to name those things. And like, what do, what, how do I feel with this person? How do those kinds of things? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. So noticing how, um, whatever relationships you have in your life, And if you don't have any, that could also be kind of telling, like, why, why don't you like, let's explore from a loving, kind and compassionate way, because reasonable, like you're reasonable. Like I always start from that, that ground of like every single person that sits in front of me is reasonable. They are spirit. They have experience. They didn't just come out of a vacuum. And then all of a sudden have these, this inability to form relationships with people. Right. Mm -hmm. There are things that have happened in the course of their life that have kind of 
made it so that, you know, they are relating with like maybe men in a certain way, or maybe that they are fearful of having close relationships with women, right? And that can go like across the aisle. And so it's really kind of exploring also what a quote unquote healthy relationship looks like. Mm. And that's going to look different for every person, right? And sometimes it might start off as a small list, but over time, as you do the work to heal and as you do the work to kind of excavate, like and go a little deeper into what prevents you from being fully seen and connected with someone, that list will grow, right? And you'll be like, I I want deep, meaningful relationships. And it doesn't have to be with every single person you come in contact with, right? right? Like we do this, like it has to be all or nothing. No, it doesn't. You know, you can cultivate that with just a few people because those connections, those relationships are reparative. Like restoration happens in relationship. Sometimes like I think, that the answer to something has to be so um, complicated Mm -hmm. when it's really like, start with making a list of what you notice. (laughs) What is present? What can you observe? Like what is in your consciousness, right? And then as you continue over time, things will start to kind of trickle in and you'll be like, oh, I didn't even consider that, right? Like as you start to try to exist differently, right? Like I I recently went through this uh, meditation teacher training program. And one of the really magical things about it is building our current selves from our future self. Right. Mm -hmm. So if it's you wanting to have, and I guess some of it's like the law of attraction, like there's just so many different like things that tie into it, but it's like seeing yourself in relationship with someone, what does that look like? What that, what would that healthy thing look like in the future? Like if it's something that you want in the future and not narrow it down, not to necessarily what it looks like or the specifics of, you know, who this, who their features are or anything like that, but how do you feel Mm -hmm. in relationship with this other being Mm. right how do you feel what's that what do you want to cultivate within yourself I love that and it reminds me that yesterday I was on Instagram and I saw this um I can't you know sometimes I like I follow like tanks good news or whatever that Mm. account is and there's another one called delightful or something and wholesome meets the internet there's all these like you know (laughs) just like restoring my faith in the world you know good stuff (laughs) we have to have that in our in our curation (laughs) Yes, exactly. And it was a video of this dad who had built a tiny little ramp for his daughter, who I think, you know, she was probably five, Mm -hmm. um, a little skate ramp for her skateboard. And she had, she was, she had fallen and she had gotten hurt Mm -hmm. and she was scared to go again. Mm -hmm. And he was saying to her, you don't have to go again. If you don't want to, like, we'll be done right now. If you do want to try it again, I'll grab you. You know, if Mm -hmm. you fall, I have you. Mm -hmm. And she did try again and she was able to do the thing. And he was Mm -hmm. like, you were really brave Mm -hmm. and that was really great. And even if you hadn't gone again, that would have been great. And you did go again and look, you did it. And I'm, you know, and just like, and I was watching this and I was like, okay, a couple things here, Rem. A, there are men out there like this. Yeah. And B, how do I shift my energy so that I attract 
this kind of energy into my life because I think I show up with a lot of cynicism about relationships yeah. and that's probably not very helpful in attracting <laughs> like really- you're just going to attract cynics, cynics yourself. Yes. And I have, I totally have attracted <laughs> yeah. cynics. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of, it, it goes back to what you were saying. And I then, and I wanted to just kind of give that as an example. I just think that's so the more we can do that, the more we can, even if we're, it's like, a, it's like, a a friend told me years ago, she's like, even if you make a one degree shift from where you are now, like mm-hmm. it's only one degree, but if you keep going one degree away from this point where you are now yeah. years down the road, you'll be in a completely different place if yeah. you had just continued where you were. So just these small shifts, yeah, you know, they can have a huge impact. And I do want to shout out the internet for all of the like crap that's on it. There are still those moments of like humanity, <laughs> those yeah. moments where it's like, ah, uh, okay. Because Without it, we probably wouldn't be able to connect with this other realm, right? Like outside of our like four walls or our whatever box we may be in or right. environment. So yeah, shout out to the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I know that a big part of my complex PTSD has been reflected in my spirituality. Um, and as a result of that, I felt just this like incredible anxiety, like you know, the world just isn't safe. The other shoe could drop at any second. Can you talk about the relationship anxiety has to complex PTSD and what you found to be effective when we're working to start trusting again? Mm -hmm. So anxiety, some, I forget where I read this, but like someone was like, well, anxiety is fear in disguise. Mm. And I was like, okay, can we unpack that? And it's like, okay, fear of what? It's like, okay, fear of the unknown. Like it's the manifestation of not knowing what is going to happen next. Ooh, that's exactly what it is, girl. Ooh, not knowing what's going to happen next. And a way that I like to work with people around like anxiety in general is trying to build that muscle of when have you been able to show up for yourself in a way that was loving, that was caring, that was kind, Mm. right? Reminding folks (laughs) that you can trust in your innate wholesomeness and your innate goodness and in your ability to protect yourself, right? For as many times as we may have let ourselves down, we can also maybe count times where we were able to show up for ourselves, And so it's really building that, that trust back with your authentic self and reconnecting with like what it is and who it is that you maybe were born to be that kind of got stilted or jilted from you because of the environment that you grew up in. Mm. This piece around connecting with our authentic selves How do you, how do we go from, okay, I know who I am to I'm safe? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And it's going to be different for everyone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it doesn't start at, I know who I am because Mm -hmm. you don't have to know who you are in order to be deserving of a safe space and to access safety right? Sometimes we can only access who we are in that space where we find safety. Mm -hmm. 
right? Because it allows us to open up and to be our vulnerable, like our most vulnerable selves. And a piece of it can be like allowing yourself to cultivate your own safe space, right? Figuring out what that is for you. And it can be real or imagined, right? Because our brain is this wild thing that doesn't know the difference between what is happening because this is how we, we suffer when we pull memories from the past into the present moment. Right. We think it's really happening again. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes yeah. it's just running on route, like in the background, like, and we're like, mm, nope, it's time to defrag that. Let's go ahead and wipe that out. And like giving yourself an opportunity to create a safe space within your mind, within yourself. And this is kind of using our imagination to go there. And sometimes this can be hard too, when you're not in an environment that feels safe for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, one thing I was going to say is I feel like for me anyway, with my traumatized brain, I was like, if anything bad happens, I am not safe. Right. Like, uh, if I, you know, I'm a free, I work freelance. If I lose a job, I am not mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm. If, um, if I sprain my ankle, see, I am not safe in the world. You know, like all of these things, mm-hmm. uh, because there was, there was so much, um, with my parents, unpredictable rage. It was like, there were these bombs going off all the time yeah. that were, you know, you think you're just cruising along and everything's fine. And all of a sudden you're in this, um, metaphorical war, right? Like this bomb went off out of nowhere. You thought everything was cool and you're not cool. Alarms are sounding right. Like scary, scary, scary. And so as a result, what happened with me was it felt like, and I'm saying this because I'm hoping other people relate. Mm -hmm. It felt like as an adult, the smallest thing would happen and it would feel, it was like, I didn't have this, the resilience that other people had because for them, like something would happen and then their parent, like maybe they would fall and then their parent would say, Hey, you're okay. You know, whereas like maybe an example is I would fall and my, and then I was in trouble. Actually that did happen. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So like, um, for them, they might go into adulthood being like, Oh, this thing happened, but you know what? I was raised to feel like something happens, but it's okay. And now here I'm an adult. And I know that that's true, but me, it's like, oh, this thing happens, but now I'm fucked and the world hates me and God hates me. And right. Like I go into this spiral. Mm -hmm. So some of it, I think is like, it's like toxic shame, (laughs) toxic shame spiral. Yeah. And to going back to what you said about like figuring out what safety means for you, for me, it's been about redefining safety. So it's not Mm -hmm. like I'm only safe if nothing bad ever happens to me. Cause that's, that's like, not realistic, right? That's not the world. Right. Yeah. So it's like safety is when something comes up that scares me or whatever, that I go take a bath or I go like, if I have a feeling, I allow myself to have the feeling. I don't mm-hmm. shame the feeling like mm-hmm. the diff, like just making a list. What are the things being in nature, you know, mm-hmm. um, getting hugs from someone who I know really loves me. So yeah, I love this, um, redefining safety, thinking about what, what really makes you feel safe. Yeah. And I like how you were like, and, um, the world is not a safe place. (laughs) Like we can't, we can't, we can't rely on bad things to not happen because bad things are going to happen. And we can't allow ourselves to get stuck in, 
the bad things that happen, right? right? We can also know that good things happen and that we can hold ourselves and trust and we can protect ourselves that we know how to navigate those moments. And each time we'll get better, right? Especially when we're away from them, because sometimes we can't, we can't help when we have a, an, a response to something, right? An over response to something that may have seemed small to someone else, right? So like, for instance, crying when the police officer, like when, the, when you told the story in the beginning, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. Like, this is like, a sh- like all of that, right? Okay, so this time you, you recognize, right? But through the power of reflection <laughs> and through the ability to kind of allow yourself to even go back and edit, that experience, like there are different things that we can employ to like edit. There's this uh, process called tysis, right? Where we can freeze frame that experience where it was at the height of our emotionality and think about what could we have um, used in that image, right? To make us feel better. And sometimes it might be, okay, I'll Photoshop a smile on the officer's face versus it be right <laughs> and so it's just like I just needed to know that he wasn't someone coming and trying to threaten and punish me right like maybe it's him giving us a lollipop I don't know it's it's something like making it so that we're softening that experience but then we're also allowing ourselves to build resiliency by knowing we can go back and that we don't have to have the same response in this moment mm. right Oh, I love that. Oh my God. I'm putting a, I'm Photoshopping a smile on that officer right now. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Maybe not the cops, but <laughs> God, I love it. okay. And, and I love that you brought in this, like, you know, this, when we're thinking about the world is not a bad place or is a, is a bad place mm-hmm. and is not right. It's all the things. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to ask, I wanted to bring this piece in because when I was reading about complex PTSD, it just feels like there's a cultural component to this, right? Cause like, oh, yeah, we live in the States. We live in a society where people are being gunned down at school, at church, at the grocery store, a society where like being black or Brown or an immigrant or queer can mean violence at any moment, especially from the police, you know, women are blamed for being raped. And now in many States won't even be able to get abortions when they need them for whatever reason they need them for, you know? Uh, And even if a person in any of these groups or not in any of these groups doesn't experience violence directly, a part of complex PTSD is witnessing violence, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you're not the target. And if you watch the news, you're witnessing violence all the time and thinking it could be me next, right? Especially with gun violence, because it's so unpredictable, right? When we're looking at complex PTSD through that cultural lens, and we're thinking about anxiety, distrust of the world, you know, how, how do we approach healing in that, in that instance? So to to me, there's definitely this cultural component, right? Like, and it's a collective, it's a collective thing. We all need to come to the table and recognize that the ways we've been operating is not sustainable for us. It's Mm. not healthy. We are doing a great disservice to a lot of communities and marginalized communities and marginalized groups and people. And I remember like reading about um, CPTSD and how the early like psychiatrists and mental health workers were seeing 
these symptoms that, you know, didn't just fit into PTSD, right. Of like folks who were from the like Holocaust survivors, right. All the way to intimate partner, um, violence survivors, Mm. right. And DV survivors. And like those things did not happen in a vacuum. There was like a cultural component, right? So it's really taking a look at who are who is protected and who is not protected and who's complicit <laughs> in that piece. And so I I often in the work that I do um is act like activism. <laughs> Mm. Activism is important, is important as, as an important approach to healing um, in general, because it's not, we're not at fault for the traumas that we experience, right? Like our parents did the best that they could, right? They were probably traumatized more oftentimes than not. And so that cycle will continue to repeat itself because of the society that we grew up in turned a blind eye to intimate partner violence or turned a blind eye to a whole group of people being exterminated or whether it was the Holocaust, whether it is black lives today being gunned down, whether it is black trans lives being murdered at a ridiculous rate or indigenous women going missing, like turning a blind eye does not benefit anyone. And if we think we are safe because we are turning a blind eye, we are mistaken. It's just a matter of time before it comes around to the identities that we hold. Right. Yep. And that's, I think like the biggest, that's the piece that so many people aren't getting is that you're not safe because it wasn't you Mm -hmm. that time. It's, it's like Audre Lorde said, your silence will not protect you. Yeah. And I love that you bring in activism and how healing it is. Cause you're absolutely right. Um, you know, when Roe was reversed, I know you and I were talking then and, um, and you reached out to me and it was like such a lovely thing. Cause I was, I was so fucked up in the head over it. And I called over to the Arizona, like Democrats, mm-hmm. you know, headquarters. And I was like, how can I, what can I do? What, what can I do? And they were like, Hey, we need signatures to get X, Y, Z on the ballot. And so I went over, I drove over to the democratic office near me. I picked up the petitions. I, I was that person standing outside being like, Hey, do you want to sign my petition? And like, did I get a lot of haters? Yeah. I live in Arizona. (laughs) There are a lot of people out here who aren't about Um, Mm -hmm. people with uteruses having control over their bodies. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just how it is. But when I turned, when I submitted those uh, signatures, which by the way, I submitted them on the 4th of July. It was just like such, I was like, this is what fucking freedom is about. (laughs) And, and it was, it was so healing for me. So thank you for bringing that piece. And I think it's such an important piece. And yeah, we do live in a really unhealthy um, culture where there's just so much that we need to look at. We just really need to look at it. Yeah. And I think that that component of, um, like our trauma being our own and it happening in a vacuum, it doesn't, it didn't, it didn't start with you. It started way before you, you just happened to be the recipient of some really fucked up stuff. And yeah, now we're here and let's heal baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yes. On that note, is there anything else about CPSD, CPTSD that we haven't talked about that you want people to know? I think it's important to remember that trauma in general <laughs> is not a like clear cut thing, right? So two people can experience the same thing and one person can be completely fine and the other person can just kind of really be rattled and may have symptoms that fit into the diagnostic statistic manual, right? That criteria of the the Bible of mental health professionals, or I say, I would probably say the Bible of insurance companies really, um, (laughs) that fits into that criteria. It doesn't necessarily mean that it, it captures everyone's experience. And I think something that I had been reading when I first was exposed to complex PTSD, like several years ago, actually, like I didn't look too much into it at the time because there was not much and I was just, you know, life was lifing. So <laughs> I just remember how it wasn't in the DSM at the time. And I honestly don't, if I'm, you might have to correct me. I don't think it's in, I know we had a recent release. that was like a revised version of the DSM-5 just come out, but mm-hmm. I don't think complex PTSD is listed quite yet. I know it's been listed in like across the pond in the UK on ICD, it's there, mm-hmm. right? It's like other countries were hit to it before we were. And part of me is like, that's suspicious. Like, you know, all of these atrocities have been happening in the world. People have been coming up with these like, symptoms, these manifestations, and yet there is a holdout why of being able to actually accurately capture so much more. And that's probably why now that I'm thinking about it, like, because (laughs) you would capture so much more of the stuff that people are going through and the ways in which people are being traumatized, right? right? Because it's prolonged, like to live in a state of perpetual harm or like where there's stuff happening that's too fast, too quick, right? Like Resma comes, I think definition that he uses too soon, too much, too fast, too long, and where there's not enough of something reparative happening, mm-hmm. right? And for a child who's growing up in a home where it doesn't even have to be physical violence, right? You don't have to be physically abused in order to develop symptoms of complex PTSD later. It could be emotional abuse, emotional de- neglect, verbal abuse and verbal neglect, right? So it doesn't have to be something that's physical. It's really just that assault on your psyche, that assault on the innateness of who you are as being worthy and whole and good enough, right? So yeah, all that just to say is like, I see it as a spectrum. <laughs> like on one one part of the spectrum, you might get the regular PTSD, which is, as you explained that, like car crash, an accident, something that might be more clear cut. Whereas with complex PTSD, it's over a longer period of time, but it might not be something that's very clear cut. There might not be that story. And even with the symptoms of it, like it doesn't present the same as PTSD, like thinking about like the emotional, like you can have flashbacks, emotional flashbacks, which is what you described when you say you were crying because you were in trouble, right? That's an emotional flashback. You go back into that point emotionally. You're probably not visually seeing, right? 
like flashback doesn't have to be a visual thing. It can be a felt, a visceral thing because our bodies get imprinted with all of these traumatic experiences and we lock it into our code and our DNA, right? It gets locked into our physical body. And so a part of that healing is like figuring out where it is stuck in our bodies and allowing it to move through and move out. So, you know, finding someone who is a relational, like, a good enough of a relationship that you can have with to like kind of unpack some of these things is important, but just knowing that it's a spectrum, it's not like a clear cut thing. Right. And you're no less defective for having this experience. I think that's the one thing that I always like, I'm just like reminding people that like, you're not defective. You just have these experiences that have made you see the world in a certain way. And you can decide, I don't want to, continue to live in this perpetual pattern in this cycle. Okay. Let's, let's do some, some work together. Let's figure out how we can get you to be living the life you actually want to live because everyone is deserving. Right. And everyone is whole like period. So Mm, period. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Renee, for coming on. I adore you. I have learned so much. And if people want to um, connect with you, how can they find you? They can find me on Instagram at Renee Tate AMFT. I believe that is my IG handle. <laughs> um, yeah. I so know. I'm always like, what? Connect with me there. Okay, cool. Right on. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at uh, Remy's R E M E E Z on Insta. That's my personal Insta, but I also just started, Hey, a pod Insta. And that is at the Patrama party. Uh, and if you have a minute and you feel like this podcast has been helpful for you, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. It means so much to me. I read every single one and until next time, baby, enjoy the party. 